Next Chapter Podcasts. Next Chapter Podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to How I Got Greenland. I'm Ryan Hi. Gibson. I'm Alex Collegian. And today, our, well, today we have uh, another one of Alex's NYU buddies. Cronies. So, yeah, cronies. Not, she's not a crony. Though. She's not a crony. But she's from the old school. Yeah. This is uh, Sophia Sondervan. She is a Dutch filmmaker, now a longtime American resident, perhaps citizen at this point. And uh, we met at NYU. She has now come full circle after producing dozens of films. She continues to do that, but has become a professor at the NYU grad and undergrad schools, teaching what else? Producing. And she was nice enough to take time out of her busy schedule to come and talk to us about her greenlit moment, as well as the film that influenced her, Contempt, directed by Jean-Luc Godard. Again, a B-side. We probably, most people, if they know Godard, unfortunately, will know him from Breathless, breakthrough film. This one came not long after, but was his attempt at more of a mainstream film. Ha. And, and he cast the movie star Jack Palance. Yeah. To play the evil producer. This is a, a, our favorite It was favorite odd to see genre. Jack not in a cowboy hat or... A- but he's a virtual cowboy hat. I mean, the guy is just... You can't, you can't bury Jack Palance in a role. He's Jack Palance... I'll still never, I'll still never forget him doing the push-ups in the, the push-ups. Os- during the Oscars. The push-ups. When he yeah, was like I mean, uh, American and, when icon. he was like two hundred and six, like Margot Fontaine. And contempt is one of our favorite subgenres, which is movies about movies. This was it Godard. is a movie about a movie. Yeah, about the making of a movie, Slightly. including Godard in it as one of the cast members and director Fritz Lang as the director. Of the film in the film with Zimonical with Zimonical on the uh, and some good zingers too on yeah on Fritz Lang's part yeah not and, many lines he probably has like ten lines max and the classic kind of mid sixties European film which mm. is a cast a multi cultural cast and everyone just kind of speaks their own native language so what is that called <laughs> you had that fancy word for that. Well, it was Cinecetta was the movie studio in Italy at the time. Where everyone spoke, like some people spoke Italian. They just some were like, happy French, to have you. Oh, you're a movie star in your territory? Boom. Come here. Boom. And your you're lines in. will be in your native tongue. Bam. And we'll either dub it or worry about it later. And of course, most people, especially me, kind of came at that from the good, the bad, and the ugly. A few dollars, you know, for a few dollars mm-hmm. more where you see the lips moving you see a guy who clearly looks Italian or something, but he's playing like a Confederate soldier and he's clearly speaking Italian, but the voice is like, well, I don't know. I heard you was, you was a bounty hunter, you know? And so so it's kind of fun to watch. Here's a, here's a question. Do you think, uh, do you think that contempt was filmed in Italy or in France? Well, it was definitely shot in Capri, uh, the, I, I mean, uh, really? Are you sure about that? It, I believe it was shot in Italy. I felt like it was being shot in Italy, but with Well, French. Carlo Ponti is one of the main producers. Yeah, he's, he, was, yeah. he was famous for 
shooting that way. He he was one of those power guys of the 60s. He did Blow Up. He did Dr. Zhivago. And the funny thing is, is that the producer in this film does not come off the great, <laughs> the greatest. I wouldn't say he's the bad guy, but he's... Oh, he only talks about controlling the movie and having all the money and also and, I'm going to sleep with your wife, so yes, suck it. And you need the money and yeah, yeah, he comes off as a pretty... He's a real gem. Harsh character. He's a real gem in this movie. Just a peach. <laughs> um, gives, a good, gives a good name to producers everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So Sophia, that's what we talk about her, uh, her early days in uh, Netherlands. She's Dutch. She's a lowlander, but just slightly to the right. Of and, the then, uh, and then her days in NYU. And then uh, we, we get a brief conversation about contempt, which, yeah. which is nice. So I think, with, I think without, without further, further adieu, adieu, here's Sophia Sondervan. All right. This All is right. how I got greenlit. Enjoy. Sophia, I'm going to start this because I, I love the fact that you're smashing other uh, shows. So keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so I just went ahead and started. You should have seen a countdown, and now right. now we're yes. recording. Now, right now. now it's real. Yeah. So um, you, you've uh, you hate other podcasts and what? No, not at all. No, 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 no. All no. other podcasts will bow before us. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I love some podcasts. <laughs> you're now come on now that's not where some. we started it's not where we started anyway welcome to how i got greenlit our guest today is producer sophia sondervan welcome sophia thank you thanks for having me thanks for coming on sophia Alex, where do we start today? Okay. Yeah, we went to school together. We met there. I was. We were trying to remember the other day. I was a, a like a junior, and you were a freshman or something. You're a couple of years behind me, I think. Yeah, I think so. Since I graduated last year, that's about four years ago. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> you've had you've had quite a career in three short years. <laughs> you, you you came back to your roots. Yes, it's true. It's true. Um, and I don't know when we talk about the movie, but it's funny because the movie that we're going to talk about is actually something I saw while I was at NYU. And it was really interesting to revisit it so many years later, um, as an adult versus a film student. A kid. Yes. So the film we're talking about is Contempt by Jean-Luc Godard. And what's, the, course, what's the French name? Oh, for this how film? do you say it? I don't know. I'll fail miserably. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not good at it. But he passed away last week, very recently, and it was a good, timely pick on Sophia's part. And I totally agree. You tie into a one of our many sort of like theories and recurring themes that we find when we interview a lot of filmmakers and film lovers, which tend to be the same person. Which is, you change, the film does not change. So my analogy is. I watched Heat when I was a young man and I loved the action and I couldn't wait for the boring emotional scenes to end. And now I watch it as an adult and I watch the emotional scenes and just kind of go through the action scenes because it's about adults. And when you're a kid, you don't see all the nuance. So I'm sure when you watch Contempt, which is about a marriage and you weren't in a marriage at, when you first saw it, you can now 
kind of pick up the nuances that maybe you ignored as a younger viewer? Yeah, so the French title is Le Mépris. <laughs> Just Thank you. Answer that question. <laughs> oh, oh, in case uh, listeners, everyone, Sophia knows more than us. So just... <laughs> No, Sophia looked it Hang up in. while you were talking. <laughs> <laughs> we, no, no, not while I was talking, but while Alex was talking. You know, it's funny that you say that it's the marriage that clearly you talked about when you when you saw the film or, or that, that appealed to you when you just watched the film. But for me, it's actually the producer role and the, producer, <laughs> the Jack Palance. <laughs> yeah. And the producer interacting with the director that is interesting to me because with the director and the screenwriter, that's interesting to me because that's something that I think we very often see today, this signing on to a certain concept and then, you know, ending up with something totally different. Yes. Yes. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, there you go. Yeah. I, uh, right. I mean, sure. There's a lot to the film, but I don't want to skip ahead. So that'll be, that's the dessert. You're skipping to the dessert. Okay. <laughs> yes. But yes, I agree with you. And that's the great subjective quality of film is that's what you picked up. And that's what I picked up <laughs> based on our subjective I do, uh, experiences. When we, when we get to it though, I do want to cover the amount of cigarette smoke during that movie. Just <laughs> when we get there. Right. Maybe everyone can talk about all this, uh, the mental games going on between the three, you know, titular characters. But I, I do want to talk about the amount of smoking, especially smoking in bathtubs, which is amazing. Anyway. Yeah. The, and with, with a hat on. With a hat. Yes, yeah. Always and with a hat. Be, because of uh, who did he think he looked like? Uh, uh, Dean oh, Martin. Yes. Dean, Dean Martin. Martin. Dean Martin. He was Dean going Martin. for the stingy brim look of the Dean Martin era. Yeah. yeah. So usually uh, Sophia act one of our show is your early life and how you, how film played into it. When did you first discover film? Was it something you always wanted to do or did you find it? Was there a film that changed your life or did you just end up at film school? Just were like, I threw a dart at a board and that's where you ended up. So I, I'm from the Netherlands and My father was a journalist, pretty well-known journalist, and I always thought I would also become a journalist. And my family moved to the U.S., and when they moved to the U.S., my father really wanted me to apply to an American university, but I actually really wanted to just go back to the Netherlands and study journalism. So I applied to one university, and I picked NYU, because I really liked New York and I felt that it was the closest to Europe, you know, in the States that you could get. And I applied for journalism because I figured out that I probably would not get accepted at this level of English, just having had some high school English in the Netherlands and a couple of years here. So I thought that was a pretty safe bet that I would not get in and that I could go back to the Netherlands. But then I did get in. (laughs) And on the condition that I would take a lot of English classes on the side of my journalism classes. And so I did that for one semester and I was really feeling like I had such a setback on other students because I just really couldn't express myself the way I wanted to because I just didn't have the words. So somebody said to me, you know, 
you could go and study film and then you don't really need to speak English because you can just, you know, work with images and write dialogue, but it's, you know, you don't have to write, depending on what kind of films you want to make, you don't have to write a lot of dialogue. And I think you'll feel much better about expressing yourself. So I reapplied after my first semester to Tisch, to the film school, because within NYU, there are different schools and you still have to audition wherever you want to go or reapply. And then I got in to Tisch for filmmaking. So it was, I didn't set out to do that. I fell into it. Could and it, could, you you were you got in based on your writings? Like, did you have a, a portfolio of like creative writing or what? Yeah. So I ha- so there were different things you could do to get in. So I I was already living in New York, of course, because I was in the College of Arts and Science. So I took a camera and I walked down St. Mark's Place and just took some random photographs of like steps and houses. And then I had a friend who was studying photography and he took it into the dark room and developed them. And then I wrote a, an essay about how hard it is to live in America when you're from the Netherlands. And that got me in to the film school. I have a quick question, Sophia, and, and you feel free to punt this question, but I would love to know, obviously I have no idea what it's like. So can you tell me if you wouldn't mind, do you remember going to see films while you were in the Netherlands? Were they strictly films from the Netherlands? Were they, do you remember how just having a general love of film, like as a teenager before? Oh yeah. that's a really good question. Yes, absolutely. So it was mostly American films because it was very expensive to go to the movies. So we would only, we would either see movies at like our local clubhouse which were generally like kids movies but the movies we would see in the theater that i remember from my youth were the gremlins ghostbusters ferris bueller's day off which i've since then seen about 20 more times out of africa i mean those are like the movies that i grew up you know top gun of course so, so that's like the, the kind of stuff we would see in, so the big american blockbusters basically flat, and i yeah. loved those to, yeah like 10 tentpole films that and and they were were they subtitled or were they dubbed do you remember i just they were subtitled and actually when i went to film school in these cinema studies classes they would talk about that amazing shot in star wars where the death star does this or that and i always thought like how does anyone remember that i don't remember any of these shots in any of these movies. And I realized it's because we were reading subtitles. So we weren't really looking at the film that closely because we were <laughs> mostly just reading subtitles. <laughs> you know, so I had actually, I, again, I had a bit of a disadvantage versus other film students because I just didn't study cinematography as well because we didn't, we, we grew up studying the subtitles, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Oh, well, it totally, it totally does. But yeah, I mean, I'm a huge John Hughes fan. I, I love all the John Hughes movies, but that's really, I guess, I don't know how old you are, Ryan, but I could say that Alex, for us, that's our, really our defining generation, I think. Yeah, I'm uh, 48. So that yeah, kind so of falls, falls right yep. in there. Uh, you know, when you say club, so was there like a local club that you guys would, that your family belonged to that would show films like in a, in a like uh, auditorium or something or? It's a little, in the Netherlands, like each town has kind of like a community, community place where the community, where they have 
you know, events and parties and they show movies. It's much like more a gathering, like, gathering spot. Yeah. For, for, yeah. So okay. So they have like a, a film club for, for kids and for teens. So they would show movies um, there, but the movies I just named to you were all in the movie theater. Okay. You know, okay. With, with the whole family. Right. 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 And, <laughs> and can I ask how big, how many people, what was the population of the town, the town you're from? Oh, I have no idea. Um, I mean, the whole country has 17 and a half million people. Right. It's right. Right. Very small country. I, I wouldn't, my town was pretty big, but I don't know what, maybe what 50, the actual population. Sorry yeah. to get into the granular. I just, yeah, I, yeah, I find, I, it, I, find it, I would love to know. I, I just find it fascinating that the Top Gun and Gremlins found its way over there and it, maybe to a small town because 50,000 is a small, that's a small town. Yeah. In, in the Netherlands. I, yeah, I, but I that find. speaks to like everything we know about European filmmakers, the French New Wave. They were inspired by Hollywood blockbusters of their era. They were not watching like any kind of independent or smaller film. Like all the, what we know as the indie film today or what the birth of it was, you could say the French New Wave, that was inspired by Cecil B. DeMille, you know, the big Hollywood movies at the time. So it, it's not surprising because that's what the reach is, right? That's the distribution. You weren't going to get. I don't know, like an obscure Andy Warhol film in the Netherlands, you were going to get Top Gun because it was everywhere, you know? And was your family an artistic family? Did your parents appreciate film? Did they see it as an art form or did they see it as like a distraction for the kids? Like how did it... Yeah, my father loved film. Um, He worked in film. He worked on Exodus you know, the Otto Pre- Preminger yeah, film and he worked with Polanski. He worked as a, a assistant camera and he worked a, a, as an assistant editor. So he got his start in film. That was his first jobs and then, tr- then became a journalist uh, after that. So his great love, it's almost like he went the way, the opposite way that I did. Um, yeah. Like so a mirror he, image. Yeah. 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 He always loved film. So we, we certainly, had you know when DVDs came out, we had a million DVDs. When Blu-ray, when laser discs came out, oh yeah, everything on laser disc. We had the first in in my town. We had the first video recorder. You know, <laughs> so we certainly grew up with lots and lots of media. Uh, and my mom enjoyed it, but she did something different. So it wasn't her. She, she kind of Alex, she kind of buried the lead that her dad worked for Otto Preminger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and Roman pretty, Polanski. Yeah, I mean, geez. Yeah. Your father had a love of film. Would you say you got your love of film from your father? I mean, you wanted to be a journalist like your father. Were you, is that kind of where it grew or the seed was planted, Sophia? Hard to say. I mean, I really loved storytelling because of my father. My father was always telling us stories. He was writing stories. He was telling us stories. If he didn't have a story to tell, he'd make one up. So I think my love for storytelling comes from that. He never did film while we were old enough to sort of witness this because he was already long time journalist by then. So I, I honestly fell into film. <laughs> that yeah, is, professionally. Yeah. yeah. I, w- I would love to say like, I grew up wanting to be a filmmaker, but it's not true. I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to tell stories. I wanted to do research and, and I still love doing that stuff. Right. 
Well, very interesting. I mean, thanks for sharing, you know, into your family life on how you guys would go see movies back in the day. That's, I mean, thank you for sharing. It's really cool. Of course. So was coming to America, was that because you were exposed to so much of the culture through the bigger films or did you always want to go leave home and go to the big city, wherever that is? I mean, was it always America in your mind or were you thinking? No, it was never America. So my father always wanted to move to America. That was his great dream. Since he was a young boy, he wanted to move to America. You know, it just never happened because, it, you know, there would be a journalist position opening up and then someone else would get it. International correspondent, those kind of things. So it just, so he found a way to make it happen so that he could move here. You had to have a certain amount of capital in those days to be allowed to start a company in the U.S. You had to have several companies overseas and a certain amount of money. And so he moved us all here. My brother was already here and he moved us all here. So all I wanted to do was get back to the Netherlands. I did not want to stay here because, you know, when I moved here, I was 16. I could drive a car, but I couldn't drink. I couldn't go out. I couldn't do anything. In the Netherlands, when you're 16, you're an adult. You can drink, you can drive. Uh, no, you can't drive, but you can drink, you can go out, you can... You're an adult, basically. A lot of people move out at 16. Smoke smoke cigarettes. Yeah, smoke anything. So it was really hard to live here because I felt like I'd become a kid. I'd just not been become a kid, and then I suddenly was a kid again. Um, that had to be incredibly difficult. It actually. was incredibly difficult. So all I wanted was to go back home to, to the Netherlands. I felt that up until I came to NYU where I had friends that were my age, but we, you know, New York was so ahead of its time in those days. And basically we were adults again. Right. Like you, you felt like you had uh, control over your own destiny at that point or control over yeah. yourself. Whereas yeah. you weren't subjugated by rules. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Really interesting. So uh, you so, get into Tish. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Did you feel an instant connection or were you like, oh, this is a terrible mistake. What am I doing here? No, I loved it. I mean, I'm sure you remember, Alex, there were so many Europeans. and A lot. You know, there were lots of Europeans, Israelis, Brazilians. There were just people from everywhere. And that because everyone was far away from home, there was such a strong community that formed. And then, you know, mm-hmm. the Americans like yourselves, you and Tony and everyone, you showed us the way to be here. So we, we all became kind of this melting pot of all these different nationalities and ideas. And it was just so exciting. And I think New York is like the Hotel California. You know, you, you can check out, but you can never leave. It's kind of this <laughs> drug. like, And you've been there since then. Yeah, yeah it's you a drug. Left. You know, when you're here, you're like, I can't take it. And when you leave, you're like, I gotta go back. <laughs> so I think I, I really felt at home and I felt like it was, you know, such a welcoming and interesting and stimulating place. So much culture and, you know. Would you say that the the number one benefit of film school was that? Was the community or was it opening up your eyes to to, to every part of film or, or making film? Like what was your... What did you get the most out of uh, film school? 
I often, so you know that now I teach at NYU myself. So it's interesting for me. Yes. So we're listening very closely because your corporate masters are going to be monitoring this. You better talk about how oh, are there, incredibly are there, valued. No, no, are but there, I, I there corporate masters? Are there corporate masters? It's interesting for me now to see kids that were my age when I was yeah, there. Yeah, now. And how they are sort of coping. And, and I feel like I was too young to really grasp the quality of what they teach. And I don't know how to exactly explain that, but I think I didn't get as much out of my film classes as I could have if I had just had a bit more experience. Agreed. Does that make sense? It totally does. I wish that I knew now what I knew then and I would have been in the moment. Yeah. Like, this I got there. I loved it, but very quickly I was so hungry to make movies that all I could think about was making movie. I don't know if you remember Tony and I were working on a Village Idiots yeah. with Justin, yeah. and so we were obsessed with like we're gonna make a we're gonna make a feature and drop out of this dump, you know. Yeah. And I wish I was just like, no, I'm going to go to class and I'm going to concentrate on my classes and I'm going to listen really hard and I'm going to make a great short film and go step by step. It was just, we were so, I mean, I was just so driven to get into the business of it that I didn't appreciate what I was doing in the moment. I have to say, I think that when you go to college or university in I, I, at least for me yeah i can i can and i didn't go to film school but i can tell you i absolutely look back at it and say god i was so young and really did not concentrate on being where i was in the moment yeah you are so young when you go when you're 18 17 18 and decide to go to college and a lot of kids nowadays even start earlier than that and then go away from home really for the first time and live on your own for the first time, getting distracted is quite easy. And you just, especially in New York, I can't yes. imagine. I, I don't know if I could have handled New York in, when I went to school in, in, in 90. So like that's, I think I was just yeah. also lacking the experience. Like, you know, you're asked to write a feature screenplay, but you haven't really lived yet. So no, that's a very that's a very good point. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you it's like, just don't have, like writing blues. It's like writing blues at twelve. Right. Like you just don't you have the at... substance yet to to really learn how to make things great because you haven't experienced much yet in that in that way. And and I think some kids probably I'm I'm sure there are kids that that have, you know, it also depends how you're raised, where you're coming from you know, what your life experience is like. But for someone like me who hasn't been living and breathing film all my life and was like ready to go study this, I feel like I missed a lot of opportunities that now I would really be able to take much, much, much further than, than I did then. Thank you again for joining us on How I Got Greenlit. I'd like to share with you one of our network partner shows that we like. The 10 News from Next Chapter Podcast and Small But Mighty Media. Some of you out there no doubt are parents and some of you have nieces and nephews or have friends with little ones. With kids in your life, the one thing that is universal is that kids have lots of questions. 
If you want them to understand current events in a way that's not all doom and gloom, The 10 has you covered. It's 10 minutes of news and information that goes beyond the headlines and gives kids context for issues going on around the world with a splash of humor and trivia. The 10 features conversations with interesting guests like author Shannon Messenger, astronaut Terry Virts, and even Dr. Anthony Fauci. Season two just wrapped, and all summer long, they've been airing special episodes of their best bingeable content for those long road trips. So listen to The 10 News wherever you get your podcasts or go to the10news.com to learn more. And now, back to How I Got Greenland. Do you see a difference between the kids that are coming, the students that are coming in today and where you were and think, wow, they're they're more advanced they're more plugged in obviously they've probably seen more movies yeah they i mean do you see it do you or do you think to yourself i should take do you see other kids who you're like i i should take them aside and talk to them about you know where they are right now i think the biggest difference is that we we were part of this sort of elite group of kids that were allowed to study this very expensive and very sort of obscure thing, which was called filmmaking, because filmmaking was something that was, you know, we were shooting on film. It was really expensive. It was, you know, you needed so many resources to do this. I think the the student body was, although it was very European, it wasn't very diverse in those days. And so I think a lot of us not myself, not included, but I think there were a lot of kids that came from very, very privileged backgrounds and had access to very great resources. And so nowadays, I think it's so much easier to make a film. So film is just so much more accessible to everyone because right. we're sh- we don't have to buy this expensive film stock. We don't have to buy all those supplies. And so I think when students enter the film school, they're already so much more prepared because a lot of them have been making films in high school, even as small kids. They're just so much more aware of what visual media is and what it looks like, what works, what doesn't work. They're just much, much, much more savvy than we were, I think, because we just had these sort of art movies that were made by different directors that we were following. And that was like our our lesson material you know, but I think the modern students haven't really watched those. They're not watching the same movies that we were watching. You know, they're, they well, are they watching, are they watching and, TikTok? Well, are they watching, are, like, are they influenced by their social media, which is primarily what they're making visually? I'd say they're more influenced by things like, you know, Marvel and DC comics and, and the, the big budget, you know, sequels, prequels, franchise movies. Huh. Their pop culture. Yeah. 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 They're not watching Godard or Truffaut. I'm sure there's one or two that do, but generally they're not. <laughs> right. So it's just a different, I think their film, edu- they, they're coming from a different angle. doesn't mean that their product is less good or greater. It's, it's just different. Well, so they're more exposed to films than we were. There's some statistic that like they've seen more filmed entertainment in like a kid under 12 has seen more filmed entertainment than the three of us put together. 
Oh yeah, you is know? that right? Like it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Just because they're uh, like, think about your kids. We all have kids. You put them on an iPad and they watch a movie on a plane, or you know, I mean, it's just it's it's readily accessible. I'm not saying it's good or bad. It just it's a difference to, like, we were bored when we were kids on a car trip. Yeah. In the back seat. Yeah. 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 We, you know? yeah, we count, we and, did the roadside alphabet like, game. Oh, uh, yeah. Game I one. caught up on Little Mermaid one through 12. You know, like you, you're just, you see visuals. So in my family, my, my son, when he was like five, we're watching a movie and it's not a kid's movie. It was like a PG 13, you know, for everybody movie. And he's like, oh, the bad guy's coming. And I said, how do you know? And he's like, well, look at the way that, the guy is on the left side and there's nothing on the right side. Mm. So he's going to jump out. Mm-hmm. And we, he did. I just, like, that's how like savvy, he didn't even know what he was doing, but he had learned about framing and like, you know, music cues. Yeah. They're much more sad. So, but that's what I mean. Like, yeah. So, so in a way, I think they're pushing the envelope more and I think they're making really, really interesting entertainment it's just coming from a different sort of background than where we were coming from. Yeah. Um, Is it like they want to get paid and laid or are they like, we're changing the art of cinema? Like, are they, no, are I they think more they're, they're like, just making things that are more close to whatever their identity their experience. Is and their experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas we were trying to emulate these amazing directors that were doing groundbreaking work in our minds. A lot of, no, a lot of who have for yourself. been canceled. <laughs> Roman <laughs> Roman Polanski. <laughs> I, I I do want to go, but I I really thought they phoned in Little Mermaid Nine. By the way, they didn't, that, that, one did not, that one did not come across well to me. Um, but that's the other part is we're exposed to so many children's things because being parents, right? Yeah. You've seen a lot of movies that you wouldn't normally see. Oh, absolutely. I, um, I also I also want to say minions. this. Minions. God, tell me. Right? Oh my, yeah, my, I, Ivan said. Ivan said, you know, minions have a language all their own. That's a mixture of several different languages. And I was like, what? You're seven. Stop it. Um, I do want to say, I wish they would take the opportunity. You know, Sophie, you say they they're they, influenced they by who? Mar- the kids. The, the kids know, today. I'm going to get. I'm going to get. I'm going to get, get to it. Just wait. I, I feel like this is a good point. You guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I I do feel. That I wish the, the the film students these days, this day, instead of being influenced by Marvel movies, you know, we can't. And I think Sophia, you could speak to this. It's hard to make a story. It would be almost impossible, I would say, to make a story like uh, the film we just we watch for the show. To make just like a simple love story these days is a great risk financially to make one. Whereas, yeah, but contempt was not a simple love story. Well, no, but, I, no, but I think, <laughs> I think that you, what's interesting is I think he already couldn't make that movie then because I think what, Correct. he made that I, that's, movie that's what, and he was criticized for it and he never, he tried to make a Hollywood movie and he failed in the eyes of the public. And that's what it was. And that's what it, how it came out. But he had, you know, Jack Palance was the like, the movie star, I mean, he was, they were still under the same pressures that we are. Who do you got? Geezer Who's the teaser. Yeah. Geezer teaser. Yeah. You got Jack Palance. Great. So he doesn't speak French. Don't worry about it. We'll He'll just speak translate, English. Everybody we'll else. translate every line that he says into French. Exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. Don't sweat it. 
you know, and that was that that whole uh, how do you say it, Sinichita uh, of that yeah. time period. Yeah, yeah, where they just everybody like like good, the bad, and the ugly. Everyone just spoke their native tongue, and they figured it out later. Yeah, but here's but what I'm saying is is that being influenced by Marvel and all of these things is great, but you the studio system or the independent system it is very hard. It would be almost impossible to recoup financially your money making a movie like that. So what I'm saying is it would be nice if they spent their time making movies like that because once they get in the real world, I don't think they can make that movie. I don't think they can make these simple love story movies anymore because they can't make their money back. I guess I guess that's what I'm saying. I know. You know, it's so sad because for case studies in the last couple of years, we look up romantic comedies and can't make it. when you can't look those it. up, you realize that in the last like 10 years, there haven't been any theater theatrically released no. romantic comedies. So the streamers are making them. And then I, I don't know what it's called, the Jennifer yeah. Lopez movie that came out recently. I guess that went to theaters. That's one of the first ones in many, many, many years. By the way, I, I think it was written by, by Justin. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, he does. He does a lot of rom coms. I mean, no, I'm saying to Sophia's. I'm saying to Sophia's point and to my point is that you like there was one romantic comedy. I like if you talk about John Hughes movies. What were what was I watching? Have you guys seen Palm Springs? Yes. Would you call that a rom com? I mean, it's kind of a cross. It's the. It's a. Tw- is it a tweener? Alex? It's a it's tweener because it's got sci fi. <laughs> it's got it's the time got, travel. It's element, got a couple right? of genres in it. Yeah. This was with Andy Samberg. Anyway, they still live on, but I mean, Netflix is banging out a bunch of them, like because they're cheap. Yeah, but well, they're shooting them non-union. I'm, I'm really they're shooting them non-union, and they're shooting them in like 13 days, and they're just the quality's just not there. I I, well, that's the other. You know, the other place where rom coms live on is Lifetime. Yeah, it's the Lifetime Lifetime model. That's the model, right? Two week shoot. You know, a couple million bucks, maybe. Do you feel the same way, Sophia? Yeah, I think, you know, I'm just, I'm just listening to you both and then I'm thinking about it. I'm sorry. No, I I'm think sorry. it's interesting. It's an interesting <laughs> discussion because I think another thing, too, that's happening is streamers divide movies up by audience, right? So when you're looking for stuff to watch, yep. it's kind of like, okay, you are, we've pegged you as this category. We're only going to show you things in that category. So, yeah, the funnel. Yeah. You've been funneled into a category, so yes. Actually, and you can't discover <laughs> metadata. Yeah, I actually think there probably are modern versions of The Breakfast Club and those Hughes movies. But we're not... So where those used to be family movies that you'd watch with the whole family, we're not even seeing those anymore because the... Was it arithmetic? The, Alg- algorithm, the algorithm. algorithm is not pegging us as the audience for those kind of movies. So they oh, so interesting. This, but we're not, we're not seeing them. And so oh. I've seen it. Well, you know, yeah, it's further to that. When you have the family plan on the, you guys, your, your kids are a little younger, but when you have older kids and they're like, turn on the Netflix, th- that's all the reason they call. Netflix isn't working. What's the password? Um, so there's different, you, you sign on and it's like, you know, dad, kids, yeah. whatever. And so I'll hit my daughter's Netflix and I'll turn and I'll see her homepage. And I'm like, I, I don't know what any of this is. What is this stuff? 
It's Euphoria like, eight it's times a, in a row. It's like a different Netflix, right? Yeah. It would be as if you went to a different multiplex when you were a kid, like a whole different building, and it only has like, you know, just tweener, teen, whatever stuff. And and I don't know if that's good or bad. I guess it's effective for their business model, but you don't stumble into anything anymore. There's no accidental discovery. It's absolutely programmed. I do have to say that when I do a search on any of the multitude of platforms that I have, I just want to see everything that they have. I don't want to be uh, right. shown specific or fed specific things. I really want to see right. like what what are the deep cuts that you have? In some ways, not to give a plug to the Criterion Collection, but in some ways, like I do like the way that they organize things a little bit differently. Not to be elitist or anything, but I, I do. I when so, I, so you would say they organize. They have a criterion for which they organize their films. If I if I were to say it, I <laughs> if I were smarter, I would say it. I way. always, you know what I do. I immediately whenever I get on a platform, I go to classics just yes. to see what they consider a classic. Absol- absolutely. And when it's Ghostbuster fucking two, I know who I'm dealing uh, with. But like, but also a classic. <laughs> no, else? it's not. Because all our all the films that were made in the sixties and seventies are now in the black and white section, even though they're in color. <laughs> they're just in the like silent <laughs> film like, area. <laughs> the, the, from nineteen twenties to nineteen seventy nine. That's that's the section. All right, we've lost Sophia. Sophia's our, trailed, and she's like, "I'm not going to be a part of this." No, no, I'm here. I'm just <laughs> listening. I don't, I, don't, I don't know what the fuck these guys are talking. I'm about. just listening. I'm not, I'm not doing all right. So here's my story about NYU that, that I've told is that day one, you walk in, you sit down, I think it was sight and sound, which is the beginning like production class. And the, and I think it was David Irving says, okay, who in here wants to be a director? And like every hand went up. And then it, by the end of the semester, or even the end of that first year, he asked again and it was like less than half. Because like you said, we didn't know what we didn't know. We came in with like, well, I want to be Spielberg or whoever. And by the end, people learned about sound and they learned about editing and they learned about all the particular people and departments that it takes to make a film. How did you discover that producing was your the right resonance for you in terms of the filmmaking process? Because I know you've done a lot of stuff. You've written and you've, you've directed. And, but how did you find that producing was your particular lane? So when I was at film school, you remember you had to produce each other's projects and then, you know, direct your own projects. Yeah, you switch off. You, you, well, let, let me just describe it. So Sight and Sound was you were, a, I think it was a four-person crew and everybody switched roles for everybody's film. So I'm directing my film on Monday. Tuesday, Sophia's directing and now I'm shooting it for her. So we would all have to switch hats, which was great. Because you could instantly see who had a better rapport with the camera or whatever. Yeah, that's right. So then I went through the whole directing program. So then I made a second year film, a third and a third year, and then a thesis. And when I and everyone used to say you should become a producer because whenever I worked on other people's films, I assume I was doing a good job as a producer. So they they always said, Why don't you produce? Why don't you produce? But in those days, producing wasn't as respected as I would say it is today. And especially in film school, everybody wanted to be a director. 
So I always said, no, I don't want to be a producer. I want to be a director. And then when I finished NYU, I needed money to finish my thesis film, which I shot in Europe and was very, very expensive. And so I got a job working at Miramax Films in the business affairs department. And I didn't really know anything about business affairs. So just for everybody, business affairs is the legal department, right? It's, it's where yeah, it's contracts, contracts and, and legal. The deals are made. That's and, right. Yeah, okay. And that was not an internship. That no, was it was, there was a, a friend of mine uh, was working there and he had brought me in as a temp a couple of times. And then his friend was a manager in business affairs, but she wanted to leave and, bec- and start acting full time. So she, they would only let her leave if she replaced herself. So she asked me if I was interested in this job. And I was working actually at Playboy in their international publishing corporate offices on Fifth Avenue, which was all corporate women. It was a great job. I worked for this old Playboy named uh, Henry Marx, I think was his name. And we launched the first Russian Playboy and the first Playboy in Brazil while I was there. And there were all Dutch people working at all those companies. So it was really great because I you know, they liked me because I spoke Dutch, of course. And so I was able to, you know, make myself valuable, but it wasn't a weird company. It was just a very corporate, regular company. There was no funny stuff going on there, but I still didn't feel good about, you know, graduating film school and then telling my grandma that I worked at Playboy. So when this opportunity came up, I thought I would try out for it. And then I got that job and I, was suddenly responsible for delivery on all these films with all these European companies all over uh, European and Asian and everywhere. And I learned all about delivery, which delivery means the delivering a film to a distributor, bringing in all the contracts elements and everything so that a distributor can deliver a film, can, can put your film into the theater which is the dirty little secret of making a film. It is so, much so work. many documents. Yeah. Oh my God. It's so hard. It's as hard to deliver the docs as it is to deliver the film. Yeah, but I, like- it gave me great access because I got to work with all the different producers of, you know, Pulp Fiction, In Bed with Madonna, all these train spotting, all these great movies that Miramax was very, very exciting in those days. And so I got to work with them directly because they all had to deliver their movies to me. And because I spoke French, I got all the French films. You know, we had Il Postino, the, which won the Oscar, of course. So it was a really fun time. But from that, I really started respecting the job of the producer. And I realized how much creative power they had and how, you know, they could work on these really, really exciting projects without actually having to conceive them or write them. And I and I really liked that. And so... From that, I went into acquisitions, which is, you know, buying films for a theatrical release, which I did at Independent Pictures for a couple of years. And I, I liked that, but then I really became hungry for creating these things, you know, from, from, from the beginning. So I got a job, and you probably remember this, Alex, working at pop.com, which was an internet movie company before there was any yep. internet to support web, these movies. Web 1.0, yeah. So, <laughs> wasn't that Ron Howard? Wasn't it Imagine Yeah, it was, Imagine, it was a collaboration between Imagine and DreamWorks and Paul yeah. Allen. And we, we had a really big budget to acquire short films, produce short films, and everyone was young and it was really, really fun. 
But then, you know, all this great product was made and bought. I was in charge of acquisitions, so I traveled everywhere to buy shorts. But then the broadband, which was what internet was called in those days, was not up to speed and we couldn't play any of the films online yet. So from there, I got a new job and I went to work for this company called Content Film and they made me head of East Coast production. So then I could start producing feature films. And that's really how from there, that's how it really happened. And I started producing films. So I never went back to directing. That was it. You just found your way. And where did uh, Ed Pressman come on to the scene? He and John Schmidt were partners at Content Film. Nice. So to people who don't know the, the name Edward Pressman, legendary old school producer from the... From the from just the classic days, and always and a New Yorker to diehard New Yorker, right? He was just defined by like that world, and worked with everybody. De Palma just was like a defining producer of his era. Yeah, right. Yeah, Wall Street, Oliver Stone, Talk Radio. I mean, just like millions of some of my favorite movies. Tell me, tell tell us, was he? Tell us, how did you meet him? How did you, I mean, you were with him for a while too, right? Five years. You worked with him. Yeah. So I didn't know him, but I had met John Schmidt, who was the head of October Films, which then became USA Films. Yeah, October. And I had met John and John said, and I was still at Pop, I think at the time, but John said, you know, we're going to start a company. We're trying to raise money for it now. And, you know, if you're interested keep in touch with me and because we're going to hire a head of production. And so that's, that's how I got in with them. And then I met Ed for the first time in London. I was already working at the company. I hadn't met Ed, but I went to London to meet Ed and, you know, really, we really got, we really hit it off. And so I was there for five years and then content film dismantled and Ed started his own company or went back to his original company, Pressman Films. And content film mm-hmm. became more of an international sales company with a production component. I'm not sure, actually. And then I went to run the film division for Sony Music, which was Sony BMG at the time. So I left and I made a bunch of movies there. That was part one of our conversation with filmmaker Sophia Sondervan. Next week, we jump back in and finish our discussion with Sophia and get our collective thoughts on the film Contempt by director Jean-Luc Godard. For Alex Collegian, I am Ryan Gibson. This has been How I Got Greenlit. Thank you. See you next week. Satan, drugs, therapy. It's not just the list of what I'm up to this weekend. I'm comedian Kiki Anderson, and those are just a handful of the taboo topics I've poked and prodded at so far on my podcast, Indecent, the show where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society. Each episode digs into the dark underbelly of our culture to dissect the things we aren't allowed to talk about around the dinner table, featuring conversations with comedians, activists, journalists, academics. They all help me figure out the who, what, and why behind what is and isn't acceptable behavior. Indecent with Kiki Anderson, where NSFW meets LMAO. Next Chapter Podcasts.